Thank you for stopping by at the Movie Marquee. Our podcast reviews well-known movies and contains spoilers. The podcast may contain mature subject matter and mature language. Listener discretion is advised. Enjoy the show. Quiet on set. Places, everybody. Welcome, everybody, to the Movie Marquee. Today on the Marquee is the 1976 movie, The Omen. With me are my two co-hosts, Ken. Here's wisdom. The one who has understanding must calculate the number of the beast, because it is the number of a man. His number is 666. 666, the number of the beast. And my other co-host, Eric. He's killed once. He'll kill again. He'll kill until everything that's yours is his. And of course, I'm Ted. And you'll see me in hell, Mr. Thorne. We'll spend eternity together. It's all for you, Damien. So, Eric, do you have the particulars about The Omen? Yes, I do. The Omen, directed by Richard Donner, written by David Seltzer, was released on June 25th, 1976, with a budget of $2.8 million. It made a uh, gross profit of about $61 million. The Omen, starring Gregory Peck as Robert Thorne, Harvey Spencer Stevens as Little Damien Thorne, Lee Remick as Catherine Thorne, David Warner as Keith Jennings, Billy Whitlaw as Mrs. Baylock, and Patrick Trufton as Father Brennan. So, Eric, what did the critics have to say about The Omen? You know, the critics were actually, for the most part, pretty favorable. No one really trashed the movie. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes, this one was certified fresh at 86%, with the critics had an audience score of about 80%. Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times gave it two and a half stars. He said the omen takes all of this terribly seriously, befits the genre that gave us Rosemary's Baby and The Exorcist. What Jesus was to the 1950s movie epic, the devil is to the 1970s. Pretty cool. That's metal. That is metal. The Telegraph loved the movie. They said it was much scarier than fellow possessed child flick The Exorcist, which predated it by three years. The Omen contains some of the most memorable, untimely deaths in cinema history. Can't argue with that one. David Parkinson of Empire said the performance of Harvey Stevens as young Damien was invested the film with the chill of genuine credibility. Time Out London said this apocalyptic movie mostly avoids physical gore to boost its relatively unoriginal storyline with suspense, some excellent acting, especially from Warner and Whitlaw, and a very deft, incident-packed script. But apparently they liked it. Variety magazine said suspenser starring Gregory Peck and Lee Remick as the unwitting parents of Antichrist, Richard Donner's direction is taut. Players are all strong. New York Times was kind of on the fence with this one. They said it is a dreadfully silly film. It's a little harsh. Which is not to say that it is totally bad. Its horrors are not horrible. Its terrors are not terrifying. Its violence is ludicrous, which may be an advantage. But it does move along. There is not a great deal of excitement, but we managed to sustain some curiosity as to how things will work out. The Omen is the kind of movie to take along on a long airplane trip. 
And we'll Sounds like end- they need to kind of pick a lane. Yeah, they're all over the place there. Yeah, and and the Newsweek, yeah, they're not too crazy about it. It's one of the negative reviews here. Uh, David Anson of Newsweek says the Omen is a dumb and largely dull movie. No true connoisseur of kitsch will confuse the work of writer David Seltzer and director Richard Donner with this masterpiece of psychic manipulation contrived by William Peter Blatley and William Freakins in The Exorcist. Not to mention that the diabolical Roman Polanski made out of Ira Levin's Rosemary Baby. And that was from July of 1976. So he liked it. Oh, he loved it. Yes, he he loved wow. it. Yes. Talk about just pillaring a movie in a review there. Wow, that's pretty uh, damning. Well, thank you, Eric, for the reviews and the particulars. You are welcome. Ken, can you give us the plot of The Omen? Boy, his nanny and his dog. What a movie. What a movie. The Omen. American diplomat Robert Thorne is in a hospital where his wife, Catherine, gives birth to a boy. Robert is told that the boy has died. Moments later, the hospital chaplain urges Robert to secretly adopt an infant whose mother has died at childbirth. Robert agrees, but does not tell his wife. They name him Damien. A few years later, Robert is appointed United States ambassador to the United Kingdom. Soon after, mysterious events plague the Thorns. A large Rottweiler appears near the Thorns' home. Damien's nanny hangs herself during his fifth birthday party. Fun. A mysterious new nanny, Mrs. Blaylock, arrives unannounced. Damien violently resists entering a church, and Damien's presence terrifies animals. Catherine increasingly fears Damien and distances herself from him. Father Brennan warns Robert about Damien's mysterious origins, hinting he is not human. He later tells Robert that Catherine is pregnant and Damien will prevent the child's birth. Afterwards, Father Brennan is fatally impaled by a huge lightning rod during a big, huge storm. Robert comes home and Catherine tells him she is pregnant and wants an abortion. Why would anybody want a second child like Damien, right? Learning of Father Brennan's death, photographer Keith Jennings investigates Damien. He notices shadows in the photographs of the nanny and of Father Brennan that seem to predict their bizarre deaths. A photo of Keith himself shows the same shadow across his neck. Keith shows Robert the photos and tells him he also believes that Damien is a threat. While Robert is away, Damien knocks Catherine over an upstairs railing to the floor below, seriously injuring her and causing her to miscarry. Keith accompanies Robert to Rome to investigate Damien's birth parents. They learn that a fire destroyed maternity records in the hospital years prior and that the fire killed most of the staff on duty. They eventually trace Father Spilitto to a monastery, where they find him mute, blind in one eye, and partly paralyzed. Spilitto writes the name of an ancient cemetery where Damien's biological mother is buried. Robert and Keith enter the cemetery at night, silly boys, and find bones of a jackal in Damien's mother's grave. In the plot next to it is a child skeleton with a shattered skull. Robert realizes that the jackal is Damien's inhuman mother, and that the child in the plot next to her is his own murdered son, killed so Damien could take his place. Pack of wild Rottweilers drives Robert and Keith out of the cemetery. Robert calls Catherine, still in the hospital, and tells her she must leave London. She agrees, but is confronted in her hospital room by Mrs. Blaylock, who then appears to have thrown Catherine through her hospital window to her death. Meanwhile, Robert and Keith travel to Israel to meet Carl Bergenhagen, 
an archaeologist and expert on the Antichrist. He explains that if Damien is the true Antichrist, there will be a birthmark in the shape of three sexes. Carl gives Robert seven mystical daggers and advises him to use them to murder Damien on hallowed ground. Robert, repulsed by the thought of killing a child, throws the daggers into a construction site where Keith attempts to retrieve them. He is then decapitated by a sheet of glass that slides from a truck bed. Robert returns to London and, upon examining Damon, finds the birthmark on his scalp. Mrs. Blaylock enacts a violent attack on Robert, but he ultimately stabs her to death. Robert forces Damien into the car and drives to a nearby cathedral. His crazy driving draws the attention of the police, who trail him. Robert drags a screaming Damien into the church and lays him on the altar. Robert raises a dagger to stab Damien, but is shot to death by police who have entered the church. No, Daddy, no! A short time later, the double funeral of Catherine and Robert is attended by the President of the United States. Damien, observing the funeral procession, calmly smiles. The end. Thank you, Ken, for the plot. We usually start off here by asking when the first time you saw the, the omen. And I'll go first, and I'll just say the first time I saw The Omen was in high school. And this was at a time where, and I still am to a certain extent these days, a big horror movie fan. And so I was seeing a lot of the movies, the horror movies from the 70s and the early 80s. And I would have seen this alongside The Exorcist and Rosemary's Baby, ironically enough, because those three movies are inexorably linked because of their proximity to each other in the 70s and their themes are very similar. But this was always a movie that really attracted me because I do like Gregory Peck a lot. And so this movie was always one of those movies that I always liked. How about you, Ken? So I watched this at a very young age. I would probably say eight or nine years old. The Omen is like... so much. So much. The movie itself was like the first horror movie that I felt like I was able to watch from beginning to end and somewhat be okay with it. There was part of me that wondered if I was Damien, if I was the Antichrist. You know, I started looking into my you know hairline to see if there was 666 somewhere in there. I mean... That explains more than anything else. I didn't find six sixes, but, you know, I found like two plus two equals four in there. It's one of those movies that, you know, was played on cable a lot during my childhood is how I watched a lot of these movies. And to be honest with you, with my Christian upbringing, it drew me. It was a very interesting movie because of that faith aspect. This movie and The Exorcist, those two horror movies that drew me near to them when I was a very, very young kid. How about you, Eric? Honestly, I have no idea when I first saw this movie. It was sometime probably in high school like you. And kind of the same scenario there. I was uh, really big into that movie when I saw it. And I saw The Exorcist and I saw Rosemary's Baby. For the first time all around that same area. I'm probably thinking like junior, senior in high school. But I've seen it many, many times since then. It's one of my faves when it comes to that kind of genre of a movie. It's definitely up there with like your Rosemary's Baby and The Exorcist. I usually break it out around Halloween every year, for sure. It's kind of like a little tradition that I have. This is always one of the ones that I watch right before Halloween to get me into You don't the... watch Halloween? Yeah, but that's a different podcast. Or Halloween uh, 2? Yeah. Oh, no. Ooh, no. Halloween yeah. 3, the season of the witch. There yeah. you go. Let's, yeah, let's don't go there. Or, or like Eric says, Halloween 2, Electric, electric Boogaloo. Boogaloo. That's yeah, right. Electric Boogaloo. Those movies have... Uh, 
there's a significant drop off. <laughs> significant. We'll You're being so kind. That yeah, <laughs> that's to put it as mildly as I possibly can. So let's dive in here to the plot of the omen. This being a horror movie, and I think we said this when we did the Blair Witch Project, that horror is one of those subjective types of movies, kind of like comedy is subjective as well. It's really left up to the person to determine whether or not it's quote-unquote scary or quote-unquote funny. Is The Omen a scary horror movie? I say it's more of a suspense movie. I don't think it is as scary as The Exorcist, and it's obviously not as gory as The Exorcist. It's a movie that I think is more of a suspense thriller that has kind of that horror movie aspect. It's not your your typical stupid over-the-top horror movie where, you know, they're they're calling you from inside the house, you know, something like right. that. And, you know, you're throwing in that religious aspect when it comes to uh, the Satan, the, the Bible, end of times. And it really kind of throws a whole different aspect in there. And I think you're either going to be really, really attracted to that or you're going to be really repugnant held to it. I don't think you're going to be the type of person that's just going to want to go and see The Omen, probably in 1976, and say, yeah, you know, it's let's just go see The Omen. Okay. You know, it's you're either like, I really want to see this movie, or I really don't want to see this movie. Richard Donner says this is more of a thriller. He yeah. doesn't like to look at this as a horror movie. I would agree it is more of a thriller, too. But at the same time, does it scare me? And I will say at moments, it definitely does scare me. There's a lot of horrific deaths in this movie. The scene that probably scares me the most is the nanny jumping on Gregory Peck and trying to stop him from taking Damien away. That made me jump out of my seat. Seriously? I mean, that scene yeah. scared you? You have the music, you have the shadows and the darkness in it. You don't know what's going to happen. You know the nanny's somewhere around there and something is about to happen. Those things can scare you. It's and, so you know, funny that you bring that up because I was thinking about that. And I think that is probably one of the most hokiest scenes in the movie because clearly if she is Satan's right hand there, there to protect him from everyone and help him take over the world, she jumps on his back. Wouldn't she have like a knife and just like stab him through the heart or in the back and kill him? I thought that was a little, little hokey oh, when it came to she that. She did try thing. to rip his eyes out. Yeah, okay. Yeah, but she jumped on him. Come on, it was that I thought was a little and we don't see any time in the movie that she's superhuman person no man she uh she threw lee remick through a a window of a hospital see that and that's why like during my plot i said maybe or allegedly or because we don't know what happened we don't know if lee remick's character was so scared she fell backwards we don't know if she was pushed they don't show any struggle so we don't know exactly what happened there lee remick looks like she's in a trance her eyes get all big funny because the one thing about this movie and in the documentaries that you watch are the use of the eyes by the people the dog's eyes the eyes of the people it's so subtle but it says so much eye of the tiger that's right it says so much about being suspenseful and then borderline horror when it comes to it just the use of the eyes mrs baylock's eyes were just you could see the evil in the eyes and that's the other thing is the dogs are kind of scary you go into the that cemetery and you have all those dogs and his arm gets impaled on the gate that's some scary stuff and you know something bad is going to happen to the photographer you know he's going to have his head chopped off you know he's You're done. sitting there waiting for it to happen but you it, know it's going it, to happen that's the thing about thrillers and horror movies they both rely on some suspense to do what they need to do and so sometimes it's hard to judge 
what's a thriller and what's a horror movie. Because if you look at things like Frankenstein, Dracula, those were considered horror movies in its day. But us, we wouldn't think those are scary at all. You know, the yeah. funny thing about that scene in the cemetery with those dogs, if you guys, I don't know if you saw this on any of the documentaries, but the dogs' barks were overdubbed with like ferocious dogs because the dogs actually were practically in heat. Yeah. Yeah. And, that, I thought that they, was hysterical. The one singular dog that's at their house, all yeah. he wanted to do was play. Right. Yeah. He yeah. wanted to lick and play. So. Lick and play. So, so but yeah, awesome. that's the, the part of the funny, I guess, acting with animals. You never know what you're going to get. You never know. Yeah. But on the opposite end, the Rottweilers that they had for the cemetery scene were vicious. In fact, they had to use extra padding for the stunt doubles because of how crazy those dogs got. It's a horror movie, but I understand the thriller aspect. I think one of the things that really comes out of this movie, I think Richard Donner did as good a job as he possibly could to keep it as far from the exorcist as he possibly could, because there was really no way anybody was ever going to recreate the sensation or the sensationality that the exorcist did. You knew it was going to be compared to that movie, no matter what he did. It was inevitable. It was. And, but I think he did a really good job of trying to keep it as distanced from it as possible, as far as being over the top with the gore aspect of it. And they are different because one is a possession movie and the other is a basically an apocalyptic movie based off of the fact that Damien's the Antichrist. But they're going to be linked together forever because of their proximity in release times um, and because of the sensation that was The Exorcist. There are similarities to The Exorcist in The Omen in the fact that I think both directors stayed away from gimmicks. Donner actually said this in some of his uh, interviews that he gave, that he didn't want to bring any type of like witchcraft, just things that didn't make really any sense. And I think both of those movies concentrated on the story itself and let the story be told. And I think that works for both of these movies. They focused on the story about possible boy being the Antichrist, and then you have the girl and the exorcist being possessed. Those were the two main themes, and they didn't try to add junk to it. And they were believable. Yeah. When you're watching it, you're getting into those movies going, yeah, yeah, I could, okay, sure, let's, let's go. It wasn't far-fetched or wasn't over the top. Well, these two movies, and this is the other thing that links them together, they're part of a subgenre of horror that includes terrifying children. And terrifying children, some people say those are the scariest movies. Oh, man, like Children of the Corn. You got Ugh. Children of the Corn, but even before The Exorcist and The Omen, you have The Bad Seed, which is still terrifying. And that really set the stage for the terrifying child. If you listen to interviews with horror movie makers and people who work in the industry, a lot of them say that the scariest movies that they've come across are the killer or horror films revolved around children. Because children initially bring you a sense of happy and... Innocence. And innocence, right. And when that's flipped on its head, it really sends people through a loop. The Exorcist was a complete sensation all of its own, but it was the fact that it was a girl, a preteen girl, that made it even more of a horror movie in that sense. And I think that's a sub that's a subgenre. Some people won't even watch if it has any sort of a child in it. I know many people like that. I know many people that have lived through that. 
I don't know if you guys saw the movie The Orphan. I have not. It's definitely a good movie to check out. It's of the same vein where it's a child who is the, the main protagonist of a movie, essentially. But I think that's what sets this movie and even then The Exorcist apart. But I do understand where it is a thriller, and I think it falls definitely into the thriller genre as well, because it's set up that way. Right. It's set up as, is this actually truly happening? It's supposed to make you think. And then as far as The Exorcist and the relationship with this movie, you also have two kids that don't realize what's going on around them. You know, you have Damien, who is the spawn of Satan, but to him, he's just a kid. He's just a five-year-old kid, it seems like. He doesn't seem to know really what's going on. And you could say the same thing in The Exorcist, because once you take possession of the girl, he, she basically doesn't know what, what Satan's doing to her body. But these kids, they're not the evil. They are the evil, but they don't realize that they're evil. Are you sure Damien didn't know? I don't think he does. Even when he turns back to the screen? I think he does. Yeah, at the I end. I think when he turns back he at the screen, I think he's looking at the dog again. No, no. That's, I didn't even think of the dog being in there. I think that's just an homage to a sequel. Yeah, maybe. I'm sitting here with the president. I think it's very interesting at the end of that movie where, because originally the ending was Damien doesn't survive and it's three caskets. But when you look at those two caskets, the way the angle is, the second casket looks smaller. At least to me, it did. And then, of course, when they pan down and see Damien with that kind of menacing look on his face and then slowly turns into a big, huge smile. Thanks to Richard Donner telling him not to laugh. I don't think he knows to a certain extent what's going on. I think he has feelings. Like, I feel like he trusts the dog. I think he trusts the nanny. But I don't think he made, like, the nanny hang herself. He did try and kill his mom. You know what? Tricycle. I don't know if he does or not. Mm -hmm. That's just him being a stupid. No, he did. That was intent. He looked at her as she was holding on to the banister. Yeah. And he looked right at her. He knew what was going on. Well, what is he going to do? (laughs) Go get help. Mommy, no. Mommy. There's no emotion. The kid never shows any emotion except Uh when he goes to a church. Except when he goes to church. Except when he goes to a church, right. Yeah. (laughs) That's my favorite scene, by the way. His reaction, his eyes get so big when they're driving up to the church. At first, he's he's cute. He's got that top hat on, but then his eyes get like so big. You can see that worry on his face. That's probably the best acting job that kid did right there. Everything else. They didn't allow the kid to even talk except for daddy don't. It was never more than two or three words stringed together. Yeah, that's true. So one of the things about the movie that everybody talks about is the kills in this movie. There's four major kills. There's Father Brennan with the lightning rod. Of course, the decapitation, the nanny hanging herself, and the mother being either tossed or jumped out of the hospital window. Is there any one of them that sticks out in your mind more than the others? And do they do the necessary job that they're set there to do to up the suspense? For me, I thought the movie was kind of going, you know, really nice and happy and everything's going, you know, all good. And then the birthday party comes. The nanny's holding little Damien. And then the mother comes over there almost like she's jealous. You know, she's like, I'll take Damien now. And then all of a sudden, you know, the nanny walks by and sees the dogs. Dogging obviously gets the order. But I I thought that scene where she jumps from the roof and goes, it's all for you, Damien. I know it's a famous line now, but that really broke the movie open. Like something ain't right here because five minutes ago, she loves this kid. And now all of a sudden she is committing suicide, you know, hanging herself from the top of the roof. And I think that opened the movie up for me. 
It's interesting, the actress who plays the nanny there, because they focused on the eyes, because we talked about that earlier, that there's a big focus on eye contact here, and she has the eye contact with the dog, and then it seems like the dog is telling her to go do this for Damien. I had to find out who this actress is, and I don't have her name in front of me at the moment, because I, I recognized her. I'm like, who is this, and how do I know her? She started in this movie with Robin Williams called The Best of Times. Kurt so, Russell. Yeah, the Kurt Russell, Robin Williams. Yeah, she played the wife of Robin Williams in that movie. I would say the three out of the four ones that you mentioned, Ted, I think work extremely well. The one that I feel like I needed more was Gregory Peck killing the nanny at the end. I felt like there could have been more, something a little bit more to that for whatever reason. And it's not a downer for me, but at the same time, it's not as cool as those other three deaths and how they were executed. I agree with you wholeheartedly. For me, it's the nanny at the beginning, just like what Eric said. That's one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie. It's one of those scenes, too, that's surreal because how everybody's reaction is so different. And it almost seemed like it didn't end the party. Yeah, that's a good point. It did. <laughs> Some of the kids are still on the merry-go-round. Yeah, exactly right. I, Who wants I saw. Punch? Yeah, I, I didn't never notice that until I was watching it this week before we were doing the podcast. I'm like, this is kind of weird. It's kind of unsettling. The fact that. It seems like some of these people just were like, oh, yeah, this is just what happens. Some of the kids are eating cake and just like, yeah, I'm having a good old time here. There's not that universal terror. But the one thing, Ken, you had brought it up when we were discussing a little bit ago, and, and it's why I went in this direction, is I love the fact that the photographer gets the pictures of the three major kills and one of them being himself. And it sets that timer into motion when you see his picture and you know now he's on the clock and you just don't know when his time is going to come and you're waiting for it and you start to anticipate it. I think that is really brilliant. Some people would say, oh, well, you know, well, they're telling you he's going to die. So that takes all the surprise out of it. I actually think it ramps up the intensity because now you know this character, (laughs) he's going to go. It's just a matter of when. It's a different take that Donner uses there. I think really kind of ingenious because now you're waiting for it. And when it happens, it is so dramatic it's shocking to say the least in this day and age you have these type of movies when they do those type of things they give you a fake like it looks like they're going to get decapitated and it doesn't happen it just misses they toy with you but he doesn't do that this movie he lets it all draw out i think that works really well here because there's a story to be told and you don't want to focus everything on when he's going to get decapitated there's other important things in the movie but i do think it does build that up but we all know once he throws the knives and he's by himself we know something bad it's going to happen The only time I think it does tease a little bit is when the uh, exorcist asked him to leave when he was talking to Gregory Peck on how to kill Damien. I thought then that maybe something bad would happen to him outside. Oh, when he's like wandering in the halls by himself? Yeah, I thought maybe then, but that's still part of the buildup. Now it's ramping up really quickly at the end there. So it probably is my favorite one because of, like you said, Ted, the buildup to that scene. And even though it's a dummy head that comes off, it is fun to watch because of how many times that head just goes up in the air and spins. Exactly. They they didn't expect that to happen, but they were just blessed with how that head flips and flips. But I do like what happens at the end when the head lands and they show the head against the mirror. The mirror, yeah. yeah. I think that was a perfect way to show that because then it made you forget about the dummy head. 
I'll be perfectly honest, when I watch the movie, I never even pay attention to that other than the fact that there wasn't any blood. Coming out of the head, there wasn't anything, yeah, squirting or nothing. But that's the thing, that's a concession that Donner had to make, because this movie was going to get rated X. Because of the decapitation, it was an automatic R, so there couldn't be any blood. Donner said in an interview is that when the plate of glass goes through the window and it blows up a bunch of like wine bottles and stuff and it's red wine, Donner said that's supposed to signify the blood coming up. So that's a little something to watch for. I don't think it loses anything because there's no blood there. I think it's still a shocking moment that doesn't need anything else. And it moves on to the next thing really quickly. The cut moves really well. And like you said, Ken, when you see him looking at his head, looking at himself in a reflection, that's a really good cut moment. Some people say that once a head is removed from its body, that it can still see for like 20 seconds or something like that. Oh, they should have the eyes moving like back and forth or something. That's actually true. That's why when people were executed using the guillotine during the French Revolution, they would most likely put their head in a canvas bag before because it still would move for 20 seconds. <laughs> intensely disturbing to say the least so you have these pictures of these three people that get killed but you also have pictures of thorn and his wife but we don't get to see shadow type of things of their demise i guess trying to find bullets in a picture i guess well i always took that it was prophesied that the antichrist was going to eliminate them to get their fortune and so it was kind of understood that they were on borrowed time so to speak Those three people were kind of the collateral damage of Damien and inheriting their wealth and prestige. So talking about their deaths, are we disappointed in the mother's death, her falling out of the hospital window or pushed out of the hospital window because we don't get to see truly how that plays out outside? Or does it just leave it to the imagination and that's where it needs to be? Imagination, definitely. I think that plays out. It gives you that element of wondering because you knew Damien had a hand in it, but you just weren't exactly sure how. And I think it leaves that element open. Is it a little hokey that she ends up in the ambulance and it opens up and show that she's like almost perfectly lying on the stretcher bed? To me, it's a little, a tad hokey at that moment. I never even, I've never even caught that, to be honest with you. I didn't think about it that way. I have always, there's two ways that this could happen. You know that Mrs. Blaylock is in the room. So either Mrs. Blaylock fights her and throws her out the window. Or do you think that Mrs. Blaylock told her because she's already in a fragile state mentally the person that you're raising is the antichrist and that caused her to jump i like the second one that you're relating to i want to say that she was so crazy by that time because we see her going a little insane throughout Mm -hmm. the whole movie definitely to the point where she has to see a therapist because she's thinking bad thoughts about Damien. And at this particular point, now you have the nanny that's in the room and the nanny has those evil eyes. She might have freaked out and jumped out the window. I like to think that's probably what happened. I would agree. Definitely. Yeah. And this is kind of a thread that almost is a different type of movie. I think that there's an element here that could have left a lot more suspense to the final scenes where Gregory Peck's character cuts the hair and finds the markings. 
it's always kind of understood that Damien's evil. I think there was a way that this could have happened where it could have been more ambiguous. And the viewer could be thinking, maybe Thorne and his wife are actually losing their minds. Right. I don't know why they wouldn't have went that particular way. I have a feeling it's because of Mrs. Blaylock. Some of the stuff that I read was that taking her out of the movie, because she was originally written as a a happy, happy nanny. I, yeah, happy nanny, Irish nanny, that didn't have that evilness. But the actress who played Mrs. Blaylock plays that character. There is absolutely no gray area. She's evil. She has the look. Her whole character exudes evil. You don't have Fran Drescher coming in as the nanny here. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's completely, boom, she's as evil as they come. If you take her out of the equation, a lot of the stuff is very circumstantial. And it could really make it look like, wow, these two people are losing it. What they could have done maybe even at the end there was when they're examining the boy after he gets shot for trying to kill Damien, if they examine the boy and they don't find the birthmark. And then that makes you think, was it all in his head? I think that would have made it a tad better, like you said, if they would have not made certain things a little bit too obvious, like the nanny, like the 666. On it. But then again, 666, wasn't he on the priest as well? Yeah, he was on the, the one, the priest. I guess that means he was touched by evil is i guess was what it was described that was kind of the weird part about him having the same birthmark as damien the nanny possibly have a birthmark of 666 everybody that's kind of a part of this antichrist how about this one how about him being the father that's a good question because we don't know who the father is so good point we don't because he's there at the birth right he saw the mother why would he see the mother if he already had a priest already there? And we don't hear anything about him in the beginning of the movie. You don't see him until years later. So maybe he is the father and maybe he's the ashamed father. And that's why he's repenting. Maybe he didn't even have a choice. Maybe he didn't know he was part of this evil thing. I mean, he did a dog. I mean, I don't know. It's... But they, they really did not go into why Father uh, Brennan had those birthmarks in his thigh. Mm-hmm. They were there and they were birthmarks, but he was obviously afraid of something as covered up in his room and everything, how he was trying to keep away evil spirits and stuff. But they never really did go into detail of why. They just kind of glazed over it a little bit. And then the fact that he had cancer was... Riddled with uh, cancer, yeah. Yeah, I didn't understand why if someone who seems to be dying anyways is so scared of something killing him. I guess he was just worried that he needed to accomplish his mission beforehand, and that's why he had all that stuff. I don't think he was necessarily worried about Damien killing him as much as it was he's worried for what was brought into the world. This is one of the places where the movie kind of gets into the weeds a little bit. There needed to be something more concrete as far as an answer. When they go to the cemetery and they dig up the grave, I don't care for that part. I don't care for the answer that that delivers because it, really it, make, didn't it makes, deliver an answer. I mean, why would it you, makes no I mean, sense? I mean, it's a, I, it's a gravestone that they can lift off and then they just throw a baby in there. That's it. Is that well? The first one is supposed to be hers, and that's right. where they find the dog, the right. jackal. Why give him a gravesite? Yeah, 
not necessarily that. It's that it doesn't provide any concrete answer other than the fact that you know that a jackal is evil. So therefore, anything that would have come from it would be evil. But it's more interesting. Like you would said, let's say Father Brennan, because he has the birthmark. Why isn't he the father? And to go to another modern day horror movie, why isn't the mother then a disgraced nun Hmm. or something of that nature? And that's why they have to put her in this unmarked grave that's centuries old. And that's what they're ultimately covering up. And it's this unholy unification that brought forth the Antichrist. And that's how the Antichrist came into the world. I would have been a lot more satisfied with that answer or something in that vein rather than them opening that casket and then it's a dog because that makes zero sense as far as how that goes and it doesn't provide any satisfactory in my opinion doesn't provide any satisfactory answers not by itself i think if you had a little bit more background on maybe the father or maybe there is a purpose for burying the child and the jackal on that ground we knew of that purpose like we know that damien has to be sacrificed on holy ground in order for that to all work out they have to bury the jackal on holy ground as well i mean not in a cemetery the pieces don't all fit together but at the same time i don't know if i want them all to fit together either because there's so much going on in the movie that i just don't know if i want any more explained to me well first of all i think the movie length might be a a tad long but it doesn't feel long especially considering there are moments where it's not fast-paced but for whatever reason to me it feels like it might be the perfect length and maybe i don't want anything added to it i think the movie moves well i think that particular part of the story could have been better as far as an explanation as to how that came about they go out of their way to show through the poem and the religious text about how Damien fits into the prophecy of the Antichrist, whereas they don't get into how he got here, especially because that's how they start the movie. They start the movie, it is a little bit of a convoluted thing where they tell him his son died, but here, you can have this one and you don't have to tell your wife. That's a little bit odd, to say the very least. And he's not supposed to ask any questions as to where this baby came from. And he just trusts this priest. And here's the thing. You you have not one, but you have two priests, I guess, that are involved. You have have the nun, because the nun is hearing all this babble about keeping the baby and not telling the wife. So is the hospital religious staff just all Satan, as uh, Dana Carvey would say? You have to believe that, because they end up burning down and most of them die. I would agree. I think it is kind of like a, I don't want to say like a religious front, but it is kind of Ambassador Thorne was chosen specifically for his power and his potential power. It has to fit the, the, the prophecy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what about we don't hear anything of the prophecy leading up to that that made that all work out? Because isn't it perfectly timed? And that's what I'm saying. That part of the story could have been a little bit tighter. Let me preface this by saying, I'm picking nits here as far as the movie goes. But this is something that when I watch it still, the whole jackal thing, it doesn't jive well. And if you don't catch it or you don't know, the way you're supposed to know that that cemetery is not a holy place is because they say it was an ancient Etruscan burial ground. And I'm not going to bore you with the history of that, but... Well, we thank you. They were a sect 
that had some different beliefs. We'll put it that way, more mystic beliefs as far as religion goes and could be considered dark. So that's where that whole connection comes. And that's how you're supposed to know that that was the holy ground. It's probably just another thing for them to do to move the movie along. They need something to go to the next level, and this is what they came out. It might not be the best, but you know what? That cemetery scene with the dogs and the fact that Gregory Peck gets his arm impaled on the cemetery gate, I think that's actually cool. That happens to Gregory Peck. It doesn't happen to the photographer who's younger and stuff. It happens to the older guy. I think it's very tense. The only problem I have with the scene, I don't have a problem with the graves. The set itself looked like the only thing that was on a soundstage that was on a set. It didn't look real to me. And it might have been real, but it didn't look real to me. It looked a little on the fake side. I agree. I honestly don't know if it was a soundstage or if it was an, an actual cemetery scene. It did look like a soundstage, though. You are right. So we have the three main characters. You have Damien, and you have Ambassador Thorne and his wife. Do you like the casting of Gregory Peck and Lee Remick in those roles? What kind of a job do you think that they did throughout the movie? I think they did a great job. I think uh, Gregory Peck is a class A choice. He's a name. People know him. He's a great actor. And he plays that distinguished part really, really well. And then Lee Remick, I think she was a very good choice as well. I thought she did a, a really good job. I thought they could have spent a little bit more time on the wife's character. They kind of glazed over a little bit of it. I want to see maybe a little bit more of Damien, for lack of a better word, torturing her, if you will. You know, getting on her nerve, as you saw towards uh, the middle of the movie. Mm -hmm. And I think some of the things that drive her nuts are kind of silly to a certain extent. The animals go crazy. Oh, let's blame it on the child. Why would you think the child had anything to do with the animals going crazy? Why is she scared of Damien? I could understand the husband being scared because he's been told that Damien is evil. So when these things happen, he should be the one that's kind of freaking out. But it seems like she's freaking out almost for no reason. I mean, they go to church and she sees that he's frightened. He gets scared and he like throws a fit. Does that make him evil all of a sudden? The things that make him seem evil to her are things that my kids would probably have done at that age. They rely a lot on motherly instinct. I think the movie relies on that a lot as to explain how she knows that he's evil and he's, he's not evil. normal. I think they play a lot on that. I think my favorite actor here is probably uh, David Warner as the photographer, Keith Jennings. He seems to bring, and I mean, Gregory Peck brings legitimacy to this film. But to me, I think David is his equal. When they're on screen together, I feel like they mesh extremely well. And that's saying something for, you know, working with an icon actor like Gregory Peck. When they're on screen together, they have probably the best chemistry in the whole film. Not that I'm not buying the uh, Robert and Catherine relationship. I think there are some genuine cool moments, like when they're walking and then all of a sudden Damien's missing. Up to that point, I see them as a true couple. And the fact that they forgot that they had a child there for a second was kind of sad and ridiculous since you're right there by water. You talk about maternal instincts. Where was it there? <laughs> I feel like we get a good portion of that relationship in the beginning of the movie. And we haven't talked about the music, and I won't go into deep into the music until probably later in this podcast with you guys. But the music sets everything up for a family. They play that music in the beginning like they are a family, and then the music changes later on. I agree with a lot of what you guys have said. I think that Gregory Peck is really good here. This is probably one of his last great roles 
that he plays. His wife, played by Lee Remick, she does really well. I think she plays that character very well. The descent into madness, essentially, is what she does. The person that I think I like the best, as far as the casting goes, and the casting is great up and down the movie, is Billy Whitelaw as Mrs. Blaylock. It's not very often that you see somebody who comes on screen without even saying a word. You know she is the dominant force, and she's very evil. It was a special performance, in my opinion. She reminds me of a very dark Mary Poppins, like an almost opposite Mary Poppins. (laughs) Kind of, yeah. Yeah, You know, it's the complete opposite. She exudes evil. The only thing that I can really kind of compare her to is Nurse Ratchet in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. She has one purpose and one purpose only, and it's to be evil. Right. But doesn't that hurt a little bit of the character? Because you said at the beginning here, she comes off and right away you know that she's evil. Wouldn't it be nice if she had a little bit more of a innocence to her, but then in the background you see that evil? Because I don't know how in the story that she does it because... She disobeys them left and right, and they don't get rid of her. She doesn't get the child ready for church. She brings a dog in the house and then doesn't get rid of it when he's, when she's told to. And she always seems to be questioning them. And it's very early in her job to be doing all that. And for some reason, they keep her on. And we never found out what happened to the other staff. We don't know if she killed them off or they actually did leave. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. We never find out about true. They just got up and left one day and you can send their wages to this address. The dog ate them. The dog ate them. Right. It wouldn't shock me if we found out that she fed them to the dog. Speaking of coincidental. One of the strongest aspects of the movie that I like a lot is the score of the movie. Oh, clearly the score makes this movie. It's an incredible Academy Award winning. I think Jerry Goldsmith does a very good job here making this. It's as ominous of a score as you can find. And the song that's the undertone of the the movie, Avis and Santini, he wrote that. It's an original piece of work. It has that ominous feeling. And it's chilling. That, it's it puts chills right. up your spine when you hear it, right. even if you're not watching a movie. It really does. It's one of those songs that when you hear it, it creeps you out. It's kind of like Oh Faustuna. You hear it all over the place, but it's one of those ominous type of things. And I think this is where the movie really compares well with The Exorcist, because I think those two movies, those tubular bells, they set the tone of the movie perfectly. It's just so creepy. And I think I love the fact the song hits a crescendo as he turns around at the funeral and he looks back at the screen and it's like, you know, that he's everything that they have said he is. And and of course, the original ending was that he was going to die. But that song, it's Hail Satan. It's Hail Satan. The translation of the lyrics are, we drink the blood, we eat the body, raise the body of Satan. Hail, hail, Antichrist. Hail, Satan. It's dark. Pretty intense stuff. You also have, when the dog is walking around, you have the voices are coming out very silently with the breath. So it kind of goes together. It was very unique. You're exactly right. It just sets the tone. It takes that scene where it's just a dog, but you put that music underneath it. That dog now turns into a hellhound, essentially, for lack of a better term. Funny thing about the dog, they also had to put dentures on the dog to give him a meaningful looking uh, look to them. So they gave him doggy dentures. 
I actually, at one point at the beginning, they're playing all this family type music. And then we get all this just wonderful score here. And then when she dies and he finds out, it goes back to that. And at first I thought, oh, this sounds so weird here. But then after watching it a second and third time this week, I was like, it really, truly works. I really love how it goes back and forth here. I don't think there's a misstep on the score. This is so refreshing coming off of Tootsie and The Firm that I I needed a good score. Yeah, yeah. Wow. That's that's to put it mildly. So yeah, this is it's definitely one of the strongest parts of the movie. Without uh, it, I don't, I think the movie would be lacking. Well, I was talking to somebody about this, and it might have been you, Ted, during the week. But I feel like the problem with let's say thrillers or horror movies now lack a good score. It's all about shock and awe, and they don't set it properly up with a good score. Because I think the scores do wonders for the anticipation of what's about to happen. Richard Donner gets incredibly, I don't know if lucky is the word, because, I mean, the guy who did the score was nominated, what, 17 times? And he didn't even want to go to the Academy Award because he didn't want to lose again. Right. And Mm -hmm. he ends up winning. But then has the score for Superman, which Mm -hmm. is, again, iconic. Iconic. Iconic, yeah. Again, you have two movies back to back here that are just incredibly scored and set everything up. And I think that's what some movies, especially horror movies in just day and age, I think lack is that score to set things up. I agree with you. One of the things that a lot of modern day horror movies, some of them don't utilize a score. I don't believe The Conjuring really has a score, so to speak. Or if it is, it's very subtle. Even if it's the choice of a rock and roll song, it's those choices as far as that set the mood or it changes the tone of the movie or it brings out a particular emotion. Think about Christine. The movie Christine, if you didn't have the music in that, it's a silly movie about a car that goes and kills people. But it's the music that it's being played during those periods of time that sets everything up to make it different. Well, yeah, it start. I mean, the movie starts right off with Bad to the Bone as the car's being made. Right. It's one of those brilliant things, but that's John Carpenter. He's brilliant. He's great. He's, yeah, he's really good. Although that's the other thing with, though, we talked about Halloween. The first Halloween movie, the score of Halloween is incredible, too. Right. That was actually written by John Carpenter. The whole Halloween theme song now that's become iconic, that was written by John Carpenter. So we've kind of went around and we've said a lot of what we've liked about it. We've picked a few nits about things that kind of gotten on our nerves. Is there anything about the movie that you really just didn't like? You know, nothing really comes to mind. I mean, little nickel and dime stuff that we've been picking apart, yes. But there was nothing in this movie that I went, are, are you kidding me? That's that's insane. That doesn't fit. Everything really flowed. The movie had a nice flow from beginning to ending. Damien is a very heavy sleeper. The fact that he can go in into his hair and start cutting his hair and digging in there and, and Damien is not waking up from any of this is kind of That's kind all of part of Damien's plan. Everything happens because Damien wants it to happen that way. But that whole sequence a little bit, that doesn't necessarily turn me off, but maybe later on you take him swimming and his hair is all wet and you're trying to dry it off and you see it. I feel like the scissor thing and then her jumping on top of him and that all just kind of seemed kind of weird and stuff. Then he breaks the light off the wall and tumbles down the staircase. To me, it just was kind of weird in that sense. The other part would have been just, like I said earlier, the set of the cemetery i just didn't feel like it was realistic looking but outside of that to be honest with you bravo this is what a horror slash thriller movie needs to be 
The only part of the movie that I really didn't care for, I don't even think it's like a minute and a half long. After Damien's been born and you see them in the hospital, it cuts to like a series of pictures of you see him growing up. I don't know if that was really that necessary. That kind of loses me. I just, I don't care for how that sequence goes. I think it would have been the same if they would have just went from leaving the hospital and then they cut to them walking along that creek and then that's the cut and you realize that he's older now. I think that would work just as well. I think they just do it because they don't want to spend a lot of time. They want to show you a history and like a little bit of a background of that they have a happy family life. It would probably would have been maybe even better, a little homage where they had clips a little bit of him growing up. I could see why they did the picture thing, and I think it speeds things along. I think they do a decent job of making the the younger looking kid look a little bit more like the kid uh, that ends up being Damien at five years old. I don't have a big problem with it, but I understand where you're coming from. The last thing here that I want to discuss, this is a movie about the devil. And you had another movie, The Exorcist, that was about the devil. Now, it's long been, and you have another movie, and you'll see where I'm going with this. You have another movie, Poltergeist, that's got a pretty devilish type of theme to it. These movie sets are notorious for being cursed. There are circumstances around the omen. To say that they're odd is, to put it mildly. Oh, we need to have the, the theme music start to just slightly. Right, come I, up I need I need Ave Santini yeah. behind me. Can add that in. One of the first ones is Gregory Peck was flying to London to do the filming. His plane was struck by lightning. Two weeks later, the producer Mace Newfeld was on a plane to Los Angeles from England. It was struck by lightning. Halfway through the filming of the movie, Gregory Peck was getting ready to go to Israel. He had a plane chartered. For whatever reason, he couldn't go that day. Gave up the charter to a family. Plane takes off. It hits birds, crashes, and everybody dies. Coincidences, all of them. Right. The plane with the hit the birds, from my understanding, was they got somebody that wanted to pay more. And so they rescheduled their flight to allow the person that wanted to pay more money for the use of that plane. And that's what happened in that situation. But still very, very weird. Weird. Uh, another producer, Harvey Bernhard, he narrowly escaped being struck by lightning while filming in Rome. One of the animal handlers that helped with the crazy baboon scene was killed by a tiger weeks after the filming wrapped up. This one probably takes the cake. The special effects artist, John Richardson, he helped and designed the whole decapitation scene. He was on the set of another movie, A Bridge Too Far, and his assistant, his partner, Liz Moore, they were driving in the Netherlands, and he saw a sign that said, Amen, which is spelled O-M-M-E-N. It's a city in the Netherlands. It was 66.6 kilometers away. This was on the, the road sign. They get into a tragic accident and she dies. But not only does she die, she's decapitated. Ouch. Hmm. That's going to leave a mark. I don't know how far you believe on the cursed movie scene. I mean, they all could just very well be coincidences, and most likely they are. But this is coming off, like I was saying before, the stuff that happened on the set of The Exorcist. 
there were some unexplainable things that happened on the set of The Exorcist. Things catching fire that there was no reason for there to be fire there. And just the overall tenor of the movie. Do you think that movie sets can be cursed? Never really thought about it, but now you're getting into a a whole new uh, podcast series here about curses. As long as our podcast isn't cursed, I guess then we'll be yeah. yeah, Then I guess we'll be okay. And this movie is a little different than, let's say, The Exorcist, because a lot of the stuff that happened didn't happen on set. Happened offset, but it happened pre-production, post-production. A lot of the stuff happened seemed like around the filming instead of during the filming. The Poltergeist movie, the two girls that starred in that movie die. Granted, one was a homicide and the other one was, I think she just got sick. But maybe when you film things about dark stuff, evil things, the atmosphere that you bring to the table is one of, is ominous. Whereas, you know, happy-go-lucky, fun movies that you make bring laughter and those type of things. I think even Richard Donner was actually even saying that when he does movies like The Goonies or some type of comedy, people around the set are upbeat and happy. No one dies on the set of The Goonies. Right. (laughs) Exactly. But everybody's having fun and good time. But a thriller, something that's a little bit more dark, brings along some type of maybe darkness with it. Well, that was going to be my question. Do you believe that putting something out into the ether and you're talking about and dealing with forces that are larger than us, do you think that that maybe connects the dots a little bit too much? Or do you think that you can bring about some of these things by putting it out there into the world and it causes things to happen? We don't know what's underneath certain things. And by being exposed to, like I said, this dark tone, this movie that reflects a lot of evil, we don't know what that does to the inner psyche and what it might lead to. The accident on the road with the decapitation, I don't know how you avoid that. To me, that has to be just coincidence. But then again, when you do an evil movie, a movie about an evil boy, and bad things happen, then it's easy to say, well, it's because you're making a movie about Satan. Satan don't want you to you know, talk about Satan. And then you find little bits. I mean, people were even using Gregory Peck's son who committed suicide months before the filming of this movie as part of the curse. And I, I just think that's pulling that's, on yeah. a, a thread that's not really there. And then you had the embassy bombing. Oh, no, not embassy. Uh, it was a ho- the hotel that Richard Donner was staying in was bombed by the IRA. By like five minutes after I think they left, they were driving down the road and it happened. So, But those bombings were happening, all I over. would say, yeah, all over the place. So you really can't include that either. Bad things happen. It just seemed to happen during a time when you were making a movie about an evil boy. Well, you also didn't mention that the Gregory Peck slammed the door on the uh, guy who played the cab driver. And I guess his father was part of the mafia out there, got him the part in this movie. And I didn't know if he thought he did it on purpose, but he wasn't very thrilled with Gregory Peck uh, hurting his son. And one thing we do know, people who were charged with publicity for the movie, they also played this up quite a bit as well. Oh, sure. Because people love that kind of thing. Exactly. Well, it got us talking about it 40 years later. And it was a big deal about the publicity because originally the way they were going to do it, Donner was extremely upset. I'm not, I'm sure, not sure who else was with Donner, but I think they got into like a fist fight with the people that were going to promote the movie originally because they were going to play it off more like a slasher film. 
the idea of releasing it on June 6th, 6th uh, 1976. Yeah, 76, yeah, yeah. Right. It was brilliant. And then when they did the remake, the remake was released on June 6th, 2006. So 666. Interesting remake, by the way. I didn't think it was bad, but I mean, how are you going to top the original Omen? And that's where I was going to lead next after we were done talking about the supernatural. <laughs> Julia Stiles? Yeah, this, this movie did have a remake that was done in 2006, starred Liev Schreiber and Julia Stiles. Did either of you see the remake? I have not seen the remake. I It's on my list, but I have not seen it. I've seen it, and I think they did a pretty good job for the fact that they were basically remaking a classic, but it does fall short from the original. But I think on its own, it's not half bad. Eric, you had talked about uh, Roger Ebert's review of The Omen from 1976. He actually gave the remake in 2006 three stars over two and a half stars for the original. I really like Liev Schreiber. I think he does a really good job in the remake. I don't know if it was necessarily something that needed to be remade. I think the original stood on its own. The reason I didn't think it needed to be made was very simple. They didn't bring anything original to the table. It was almost like Gus Van Zandt's remake of Psycho. It was an almost shot-for-shot remake. I don't know. That leaves something to be desired, in my opinion, because that means you're trying to say that the original wasn't good enough and that your take on it was going to be better. I think if you're going to do something like that, you need to bring something original to the table. Put something on screen that enhances or makes it better. Like some of the stuff that we talked about during this podcast that we would have liked to see. Make it tighter. And I like Julia Stiles a lot. I, you know, mm-hmm. I enjoy her very much. But in that movie, she doesn't have the elegance that I think... That Lee Remick yeah, has. That, yeah, that I, Lee Remick I has. I think she does a fine job acting. But when I was watching it, I'm like... But the presence of Lee Remick just stands out mm-hmm. a whole lot more. I agree. The Omen, of course, because we are dealing with the late 70s and into the 80s. And just like The Exorcist, it was subjected to sequels. Have you seen any of the Omen sequels? Uh, the Omen 2 with William Holden. Seen them all. I've seen 2, 3, yeah. and 4 with the girl. Oof. So, yes. I'm sorry. The Omen originally was supposed to have a girl. Donner wanted a girl. In fact, he named the boy a different name than Damien, but it was the uh, neighborhood kid. And I guess the wife said, <laughs> uh, you probably friend. shouldn't yeah. do that. Yeah, it was just, yeah, their friend's kid because he didn't like their friend's kid. Do you know this... my brother was almost named Damien? Oh, yeah? My brother was born in uh, December of 78, and my mother wanted to name him Damien. <laughs> and my father's like, no effing way. It's not happening. <laughs> That's kind of awesome. So they went with Adam, just the complete opposite of Damien. <laughs> right. So Originator of Sin to the Master of Sin. Pretty much. So, right. That's, That's pretty funny. Yeah. I'll say this about The Omen 2 and 3 and 4. 2 is actually not bad at all. 2 is it's, very good. I like 2. It's got some really good moments in it. I think the boy actor, though, was at times was really good and at times was bad. It was kind of like an uneven performance. And then 3 was just kind of all over the place. And, I mean, you have Sam Neill. Sam Neill. Uh, Sam Neill. In, that, in, the, in the main role. And he seems to be miscast in this role. 
just the way they kind of went all about it. And the one thing I liked, you only need one knife to kill Damien. And whereas in the original here, you needed all, right, you all those like knives. Six or seven of them, didn't you? Yeah, you had to like make a cross or something like that. It, I'm happy they ditched that. But three is garbage. And four with the girl is just a hot garbage. It's just so bad. I've never watched it again after one showing, at least with uh, The Omen 3. I've gone back to see what I didn't like. And it's gotten a little bit better after repeat showings but not by much i agree but none of them are as bad as the exorcist 2 oh, oh yeah exorcist 2 is horrid though the exorcist 3 is, is somewhat enjoyable i actually it's saw not the bad. exorcist 3 in the theater actually but yeah and the exorcist 2 is an abomination but as far as the omen goes a few years ago i think it was around 2016 a and e had a short-lived series that was the omen it was called damien it wasn't that bad. It was only on for, like I think, one season, which was kind of unfortunate because I thought that they did a pretty good job and they brought a different take on the Damien character as he got older. They kind of did it where he was denying the fact that he was the Antichrist, but at the end, he couldn't deny his roots. I thought it was an interesting take on it. Obviously, it was canceled, so people didn't tune in. I think that's what's like the second movie is basically is he doesn't really know that he's the Antichrist. And I think that's why when we talked about it earlier in this podcast, do I think the boy knows that he's evil? I don't think he does know. And in the second movie, they play it off that he really doesn't know until he overhears people talking that he may be the Antichrist. I think it plays better off that way when you don't know that you're a vehicle of evil, that you're naive to what you're doing to the surroundings around you. And then that's, so I like to think that in this movie, Damien doesn't really totally understand what's going on. I mean, he's five years old. I like to think that he's kind of naive, not totally innocent, but to a certain extent, doesn't know why he needs to be protected and why he connects with the dog, but he doesn't connect with the other animals. Dog is fine, but I guess the giraffes and the baboons don't seem to don't care really for him like much. Damien. I don't know. Yeah. Interesting fact about the baboons, they originally took, I think, a baby baboon yeah. and put him in the back seat. Nothing happened. So then they had to take, I guess, the big the like leader. The leader. Yeah. yeah. Take the leader. And then that's when all of them went like crazy and mm -hmm. attacked. And I guess they put like a sedative or something with baboon that was in the car that caused the baboon to grab Lee Remick's hair and pull on it. You could see her screaming a little bit. I could actually kind of see in the background that her hair is going back crazy well i think that we've come to the end here so before i have to uh, ritualistically kill the both of you <gasps> uh ken do you want to start us off and give us your final grade and review now this is a movie that i might have said this earlier i'm looking forward to seeing this movie um once we decided that this was going to be the director and the movies that we we're going to do I don't think I've been this excited to watch a movie for the podcast. And to be honest with you, after watching it, I still feel the same way. It's a great movie. I watched it with a couple of friends last week for my first watch, and I was just eating it all up. And I tell you guys how I look at my movies. I usually watch it three times, one for just popcorn fun. And I had a lot of popcorn fun with this movie the first time around. I think the music is sets everything up perfectly. I think the lighting... We didn't really talk about the lighting. I think how they shoot certain things in the dark and just 
different angles. I think it's just amazing how they did things. We didn't talk about how Lee Rimmick falls from the second floor and how they did that camera angle to kind of make that happen because Lee Rimmick was extremely scared to do that scene. But the way they just made things happen in this movie, this is just a beautifully directed movie. Richard Donner does everything almost perfectly that he has control of in this movie. And it's worth the repeated watches. It doesn't feel dated, even though the movie is 45 years old now. The actors do a great job. When we talked about the minor things that are wrong with this movie, they're minor. I'm giving this a solid B+. If it's not my favorite horror movie of all time, it's in the top five for sure. It's, one, like I said, it's one of those movies that because of its subject matter, it doesn't suffer from age. That 50 years from now, if somebody watches this movie, they're going to feel the suspense, the horror, the thrill of what I'm experiencing now. Solid B plus for me. So Ken likes the Antichrist. Apparently. So Eric, what is your final grade and review? Like Tootsie, go Tootsie, go, but it's go Damien, go. Stephen Bishop doing the soundtrack for The Omen. Oh, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> it's an upbeat. That's a horror, that's a horror movie all of its own. Yes, it is. Well, it's, it's tough to follow that review, but I will do everything in my uh, evil power to do it. This movie... I've let on is no secret is one of my favorites too. I'm I'm not sure if I'm as excited as Ken was to watch this movie again, but it is one that I thoroughly enjoy. I think uh, suspense movies go, it's right up there. I think actually it is kind of a dated movie, but I think that plays in its favor. I think the error that the movie was made, I think, really shows that it is timeless. It can really sustain its great visual effects, its great acting, um, its great subject matter, the plot, obviously. I think it's a great movie. I don't think it's over the top. I still can't believe this thing was potentially going to be an X rating. That still blows my mind. I think everything was done well. It's a movie that I enjoy. I think it's a movie that really anyone can enjoy. Anyone who is um, not necessarily religious, but if you're just looking at it from a suspense point of view, it flows really well. There's a few minor things you know we talked about that obviously I don't think play real well. I would agree with Ken that the nanny at the end, I'm sorry, not the name, this is uh, Blaylock attacking the ambassador at the end was a little hokey. I think it could have been played up a little bit more in line with the other kills, if you will, but it's all right. Overall, this is a movie that I, I thoroughly enjoy when I watch. In fact, I watched uh, The Omen 2 last night as well. Obviously a different director and really a different type of movie. You still got some uh, some heavy hitters in it, but it's a different type of movie. And I enjoy The Omen a lot better. I agree with Ken. This is a B plus. So Eric gives it four out of five Satans. Four out of five Satans. That's right. I'll come in here at the end and give my review and grade. The Omen is one of my favorite horror movies. I agree with the both of you. It's timeless. Time is not going to hurt this movie because none of the quote unquote, the gore, there is no real big gore scenes. You have the decapitation. So it's not going to suffer from the special effects of the time. Your Tom Savini style of special effects that came in the 80s from like the Evil Dead. That's, in my opinion, it's kind of suffered from time. This is a movie that has a good story to it. As with any story, it could have been a little tighter, but that's 
picking nits at this point. The story lives on. I think it fits right in line with the 70s triumvirate of The Omen, The Exorcist, and Rosemary's Baby. I think those three movies make out a very good trio of movies that led the horror genre into the 80s. I love Gregory Peck. I think he shines here, and it's hard to imagine that he was so down on his career at this point that he was tempted to give up acting. And I think he brings a very good performance here that is definitely equal to his earlier work. I think the characters here are all timeless. I think it's a story that will never go away because as long as there is religion and there's talk of God and the devil, there's always going to be the talk of the Antichrist. And that brings in a certain set of fears. Like I had said at the beginning of our discussion here, I think it also plays on to the terrifying child. I think there's something about that that is inherently disarming and creepy and scary. So I think that it fits really well for me there. And Jerry Goldsmith's score, it really sets this movie above a lot of other horror movies. To sum everything up, this movie is going to be an A-. And the reason it is is because I watch it every year. My enjoyment of the movie never ceases. It's never waned. It's never fallen off. I like it just as much now as I did before. And going forward, I'm never not going to like the movie. Interesting thing about Gregory Peck, as you were mentioning about, he was retired basically at this particular point. He took a pay cut, but took 10% of the gross of this movie. Pulled an Alec Guinness. Nice. Yeah. And by pulling an Alec Guinness, I mean Alec Guinness forwent part of his salary for part of the box office of Star Wars. Good bet. Very good bet. Well, I think that wraps up our discussion here today of The Omen. Our next feature movie on the marquee is going to be Goonies. And what's the famous line from the Goonies? Goonies never die. Goonies never die. It's my childhood right there watching that movie. So, Ted, where can people find us on Twitter? People can find us on Twitter. We are at movie underscore marquee with two E's. And Ken, where can they find us on Facebook? They can find us on Facebook, The Movie Marquee. Look us up and become part of our community and maybe have some questions or want to tell us a movie that you like and you enjoy and start a discussion up. We love to talk movies. If we didn't love to talk movies, we wouldn't be here talking about movies. This podcast is released through Anchor. And if you want to leave us a voice message, you go to the Anchor website. The link to the Anchor website, you can find that on our Facebook page at The Movie Marquee. And if you leave us a a message, we may play it on one of our episodes. Well, I think that wraps up our time today. If you like what you hear, like us, give us five stars on Apple or Spotify, and we'll see you next time. And don't forget to drink Jesus' blood every day. Wow. Well played. Well played. Take care, everybody. See you next time at the Movie Marquee. Mm -hmm.